0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Let me see if I understand what you're asking me to do. You want me to override a government block, violate my interface operating license, and turn over my channels to a bunch of criminals. They're not criminals. I know that, but they are acting like criminals. They have guns. They have taken hostages.
1: So why do you think they're doing it? Don't you want to know? Don't you think that the public deserves to know?
2: You are asking me to break the law.
1: I am asking you to give those people a voice.
0: You know I'll lose my license. But I get great ratings.
3: And It is Thursday, June 2nd, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And, and I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just Right.
4: Fade into color. And color it to black and white. Under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright.
3: 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us on Just Right or email us at feedback just right at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show, we've got an interesting theme for you. It's all about civilized disobedience and, I guess, uh, the cannabis issue. And we have a couple of guests in the studio with us today. Hey, Robert? Yes, indeed. And uh, one of them is Chris goodwin chris has been manager of vapor central since he opened it up in 2007 that's in downtown toronto isn't it chris
4: it is uh 666 uh sorry 667 young street second yeah. floor uh vapor central is a bring your own uh, cannabis vapor lounge mm-hmm. where we provide a safe and comfortable place to consume cannabis
3: now you also studied political science at mcmaster university and you ran another cafe regard, with respect to the cannabis issue in Hamilton before. I didn't even know about that till yesterday.
4: I did. Uh, the Up and Smoke Cafe, uh, a pretty legendary uh, little venture I had going for about two and a half years in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, between about uh, 2003 and 2006.
3: Interesting. And with you today, and with us today, is also Aaron Gorman. You're the assistant manager of April Central, and you have studied radio and television arts at Ryerson University in Toronto. Used to work with as a volunteer with Rogers Television on the show Real to Real as a camera operator and production assistant. I didn't know that about yes, you either. Yes, I did. How did you get involved in this? Uh, you know, this clandestine activity.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I haven't been in, I haven't been doing this quite as long as Chris. I'm going on my th- almost three years now. As a cannabis activist but uh i guess through all the years of prohibition and having to hide who i feel i am i guess it was such a relief to finally find vapor central a place where i could relax and be myself and be among other people who felt the same way
3: and then you end up getting getting involved more in an official way yeah i couldn't
1: i couldn't imagine doing anything else
3: so what kind of event are you guys into like like what is vapor central actually is it a what we hear about a lot in the news compassion club is it a-
1: uh well we operate as a members lounge so everyone is an adult we make sure that people are 18 years of age or older and everyone has to bring their own cannabis so it's strictly bring your own we don't allow anyone to sell or ask for it at our location and we we um monitor monitor all of our members behavior and stuff to make sure everyone's comfortable and then so everyone's already made their own choice to break the law and we're trying to do it together openly
3: that's very interesting because you've been there for a few years now that would imply surely the authorities know about your existence
1: I believe they do some do new one every day we get people coming in saying I can't believe this place exists and there it's like a euphoria they're so excited about it but yeah we've had um, a number of occasions with police a handful over the four years we've been open they will usually come in in a th- they'll try to threaten mostly the youngest looking members saying you know we could arrest you for that and as management we usually are the ones who are communicating with the officers and we recommend that our members do not communicate with them that they're only going to try and trick you and we stand our ground for what we're doing and we believe that we are entitled to
3: so you're you're in a interesting limbo there in a gray area how have you how have you been getting away with it so long why don't they bust the people when they come in they're obviously quote breaking the law aren't they
1: our, yeah our number one answer is us the people behind it our willingness so mainly chris goodwin and all his efforts from up and smoke to vapor central the willingness that we stand our ground and we <coughs> don't back down that we're whether they or not they send us to jail or not we're aware of the consequences that could happen for our actions but now, have you ever
3: been arrested yourself
1: I have and I've had a, a number of enc- encounters with police myself I've never uh, been to jail but Chris has and so have a number of our employees
3: mm, and, and uh, so how's that going for you Chris <laughs> how many times have you been
4: arrested well for me it's uh, uh, fun right like I enjoy this lifestyle and what I do so to other people it's an interesting dichotomy actually because uh, early on uh, I've been arrested 13 times in the last 12 years. I'm 31 years old now, but when I was 18 or 19 is when I started actively engaging in civil disobedience. Um, About four years before that, I was 14, 15 years old, and and a friend of mine, I had been smoking marijuana maybe a year or two at this point, and just getting into high school, and uh, a close friend of mine, Rob Barham, handed me a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrera. And I I went home that night, and I must have read almost all of it in one night, staying up till 3 in the morning, and it changed my life. And I I spent the the next few years studying that book and researching more and doing every project I ever could on cannabis and the war on drugs and medical marijuana. And I started doing these little mini protests that the two that I were involved in were a a hemp awareness seminar and uh, another uh, anti-prohibition protest. But both of them were... What Mark Emery, actually, eventually, I, I I learned about this fellow named Mark Emery in mm-hmm. around 1997, 98
3: Yeah, I've met the guy sometime before. A few <laughs> times.
4: And uh, he was on the early infancy of the Internet at the time. There was a user group that I joined up on, and I, I started putting my stuff out there, what I was doing. I was doing this hemp awareness seminar, and I'd rent a theater and invite people to come and get posters. And, and with all my efforts over, you know, two to four months, most people both agreed with me that hemp should just be grown and people should have medical marijuana and very few people ever showed up to these seminars and and lectures and um, all my months of work and I'd get 8 to 10 to 12 a dozen people at best and Mark said stop doing all that and start openly breaking the law and you'll find that like I, I tried to get on radio, I tried to get newspaper reporters to, to write stories about the war on drugs and, and some of my opinions, and it never happened. They never took me seriously until uh, I did an open smokeout. So he said, he used to call my old posters loud, which is lots of information about hemp and its uses and its mm. benefits and get rid of all that information and just put the words 420, April the 20th, 80% of the, the poster should be a pot leaf and say at 2pm I'm going to break the law here. And I did that, and I still didn't think it was going to work. I was a bit apathetic, and uh, I come to show up at the rally about 10 minutes to 2. Usually I'm there early to set up, but this time I was still a bit disgruntled. And I come to find out that there's 40 or 50 people already there. There's two police cars. There's a camera crew and a, a newspaper reporter, and they were all asking who's the organizer. Nobody knew what was going on. And so, obviously, me pulling up with flags and posters and stuff, they realized quickly, and they'd run over to me. And that was my first experience with a reporter in my face, and cops there, and and, and activists ready to, you know, and... uh, How
3: long ago are we talking now?
4: This was 1998. 1998. Okay. So I was 17, just turning 18, and I did my first 420 marijuana smoke out. A year earlier, I believe in 96, 97, Mark Emery did his first 420 marijuana smoke out in Vancouver. Uh, He had a little shop running called Hemp BC, and across the street in Victoria Square, they openly smoked marijuana. And it was one of the first open displays of civil disobedience that I'm aware of in regards to cannabis since at least generally what we can assume to be the, like, the hippies of the 70s. Now,
5: there was a smoke-out here in London on uh, 420 as well, and that didn't go over too well here. What did you, have you heard about it, and what do you think?
4: Well, oh, okay, so, uh, the, uh, continuing with my story a little bit, kind of answers your question, which is that the first couple of smoke outs I did, there was many arrests. The police arrested four or five of us, and they basically threatened, if you do this again next year, more will be arrested. And we did it again next year. These were all in Toronto? These were in Hamilton, Ontario Hamilton. at the time. Okay. And then instead of 40, 50 people showing up, in 99, over 100 people showed up. And they arrested one or two people that year. And, uh, but those were only on the outskirts of the rally, and we were a bit safer inwards, and we got a bit <laughs> more accomplished. And then in the year 2000, we did it again, and this time four, or 500 people show up. And it's getting bigger and bigger, and cops stop arresting people. Uh, in two thousand and one, I opened my first marijuana cafe. Uh, it got raided within five days. It was called the Herbal Tea House, and uh, it 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 didn't last, unfortunately. And uh, a year of court uh i end up getting sentenced to a, a year probation 2500 fine a year probation every year every month i go to a probation officer and that lapses and then in 2003 i open the up and smoke cafe i'm a little smarter this time and i have some of my stock in storage so when they raid me they don't take everything and uh, even if they do raid me which they did i got raided three times at that location so i've been raided four times in my life and uh I just kept reopening, and uh, uh, due to the complications I had with the herbal tea house, I basically uh, I found a, a more friendly landlord. My landlord wouldn't let me reopen, um, and as well as some of my uh, ideas in regards to stock, and and every time I got raided or arrests happened, we would fight them. And and we would, I would re-flash my store with new stock and all my supporters would now show up and a hundred of us would, you know, openly smoke out the courthouse now, or the jail, or City Hall, or wherever we could. And uh, this kind, I was trying to breed what we refer to as normalization, where the first time I ever engage the public, it's always shock and awe, in a way. Those two cop cars and 50 people in camera show up, everyone's wondering what's going on and sometimes that a hypothetical lady might be a little bit shocked at what we're doing, shock and awe, where uh, over the years that I've been doing this, it's been more normalized to the point where year after year, although that same hypothetical lady might still say, you know, they might deserve to go to jail, but it's not so much, you know, we should close them down right away. And then the next year, it's, you know, that Chris Goodwin, he's not so bad after all. And although marijuana might not be, sh- shouldn't be legal, it should be decriminalized. Or, so we've been making strides that way in regards to public opinion. So. Uh,
3: uh- are you trying to be uh, another Mark Emery?
4: <laughs> uh, I've thought of myself in that way since 18. Mark has been a, a mentor and, and over the years a, a more so you're one of the friend. seeds
3: he's been planting, not just like those <laughs> pot seeds out there,
4: <laughs> I would hope so, and I think I've been pretty successful in my activities, although the end of Up in Smoke, I get sentenced to six months in jail, and I serve four and a half, and I get out of jail, and I open Vapor Central within a week. Six months in jail, and yet there are criminals out there performing actual oh. crimes victim crimes and they get less they do uh, unfortunately and uh when you harm somebody else and and in some cases people plea bargain down to illegitimate sentences things that are slaps on the wrist in comparison to to what some people get in in the war on drugs and and explicitly for marijuana and we're we're headed to a point where harper has promised that within 100 days he's he's going to pass the drug strategy of uh mandatory minimums and uh and, and all those things associated with uh, increased penalties. So now you don't plead down when you're arrested.
5: You actually, as an activist, want to um, tell the court exactly why you're doing and you have no remorse, right?
4: No, and in some cases, that's actually got me in more trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the courts want to see you express remorse to be able to offer leniency. Uh, defendants that don't uh, and 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 thumb their noses at the court tend to be treated a little bit more uh, harshly, and and that's been my experience as well. I've been, I, I think, treated very harshly in in regards to some of my sentences, and but at the same time, I, I've I've actually assumed that I would be treated with worse. Uh, I've gone into every campaign that I've ever done, assuming that I'm going to be punished and punished very severely. So actually, uh, it, it's, it's almost a... Uh a complete reversal on that argument where, although I have been arrested 13 times and four raids and, and I have spent almost 10 months in jail in total on some other charges, I spent dead time, uh, I've had 350 encounters with police in total. And, and I could have easily been arrested almost all of those 350 times. Uh, in almost every encounter, I was in open uh, display of cannabis. I was immediately um, using civil disobedience as my tactic, mm-hmm. where I, I refer to it as most people play what I call the statue game at a place like Up and Smoke or Vapor Central, where if a police officer were to walk in, they would, they would freeze up, and act as if the joint that ha- they had in their hand, uh, if they could get it into the ashtray quick enough and look the other way, they would act like it wasn't theirs and they didn't. Oh, whose ashtray is that? Or I just sat down. I didn't even. Where my tactic is the exact opposite. My tactic is is, is immediate disobedience. Um, is I will uh, if I don't have any marijuana on me and a police officer walks in, I will grab a jar of it and I will open it and I'll show them and act ask them to smell it. Well, that's and it's
3: definitely a, we- a Mark Emery tactic. And it's a, sure. it's a weird. <laughs> thing for a
4: police officer in, uh, to, to be in front of me and have me pass him a jar of marijuana, and they usually take it, uh, um, and th- they're shocked by that, because then they pick it up and they're like, whoa, When they smell it, because it's very pungent. And it usually ends with one of the officers elbowing the other one and saying, let's get out of here. It's the There's too much smoke in the air. So yeah. it's,
3: it's interesting, you, you brought up Harper's coming up agenda, because we're going to take a quick break right now, and during this break, we're going to listen to um, three of five panelists who appeared on a 2009 broadcast of TVO's The Agenda with Steve Pakin. And what was interesting about that show, I, I've had it for a while, I watched it for the first time last night, it was absolutely fascinating. All five of the panelists generally shared the view of the first voice you'll be hearing with regard to the Harper Conservative approach on the issue. Now on this side of the bumper we're going to be hearing the voice, and it'll be the first person you hear, of... Uh, Professor Bruce Alexander, professor emeritus of psychology from Simon University, author of The Globalization of Addiction. And on the other side of the bumper coming back, we'll be hearing from Ethan Nadelman, executive director of Drug Policy Alliance out of New York City, and in conversation with Alan Young of Osgoode Hall, professor of law in, uh, in Toronto. And I'll be interested in some of your comments on, on what you're going to about to hear. So we'll be listening in.
0: You've, you've, you've said something here. You've, you've posed the question about what do we do about our illicit addictions? And the answer turns out to be being discussed along the lines of legalization and Ill- illegalizing drugs, prohibiting and not prohibiting drugs. I'd like to propose that in, the war on drugs, of course, is an abomination, and, and Stephen Harper is an embarrassment in, in that regard, but we are not going to answer your question of how do we deal with illicit addictions by either prohibiting or legalizing drugs. The answer doesn't lie on that dimension. Where's the answer? The answer lies in a society where whether drugs are legal like alcohol or illegal like like heroin, tons of people go wrong with them. Tons of people get addicted to them. It isn't just Canada. It isn't just the Western world. It's China. It's it's in fact everywhere. We, we live in a world which is different than the world in the past. As you've said, we've always had these drugs, but, but massive addiction is not something which is... Oh, fair enough, but let me, let, let me just challenge your premise a little bit here. Yeah. Presumably the Harper government is doing this because it feels it is on sound policy footing to do so, and it also feels that there's some votes in it, that its constituents think this is the way to go. If there's a, and, and my hunch is there's a broad swath across the country that doesn't think it's cool for 18-year-olds to be toking up before going to school in the day. Of course. So they're speaking to that. Doesn't that make sense? It's a perfectly good election issue. I'm saying it's not going to answer your question, which is what do we do about our illicit drugs, whether we prohibit them or legalize them. It's not going to answer the question. Hmm.
6: What do you infer from the priorities that the American government appears to have set on this war on drugs? Well, in the United States, we've been committed to a criminal justice, a criminalization approach to this for a very long time and we're really quite unique. Remember, United States, we have less than five percent of the world's population. We have 25 percent of the world's incarcerated population. We rank first in the world in the per capita incarceration of our fellow citizens. The the Russians and the Belarusians keep huffing and puffing to try to keep up with us. They can't do it. And when it comes to drug violations, we've gone from 50,000 people behind bars in 1980 to over half a million today. We lock up more people on drug charges in a America today, then all of Western Europe locks up for everything, which raises an interesting question. Why is your government and your Harper administration now proposing to follow in the footsteps of the failed U.S. policy and impose new mandatory minimum sentences where there's no evidence of their efficacy and where there's beginning to emerge a bipartisan coalition in the United States to repeal those things? It's a strange thing. The U.S. going forward and Canada sinking backwards? These questions have Alan Young's name written all over I, I Look, I'm no <laughs> apologist for our government, but I have to say, after a couple of decades of enormous pressure from your government and, and threats of our trade sanctions... Our former government, Alan! You <laughs> know what? You can change, you can change names but you still got an administration that's committed billions of dollars to the war on drugs. It's not going to change overnight. Obama's not going to just decree like a king that this will change. He made a and decree today, which was pretty damn good. He said, no more federal government raids on medical oh. marijuana in California. And two weeks ago, he said, we're getting rid of the mandatory minimums on crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. And for finally, the United States supports needle change. And so gi- you're Jimmy, right. And Jimmy Carter proposed decriminalization. What happened to him? Yeah, but it's you know, a bigger world than Obama. And I'm there's hoping, a, there's I'm a, a hoping... prison industrial complex in my country. Yes, yes, yes you're no right. Question. You're damn right. But I got to tell you, when you look at national leadership, we have some hope now, mm-hmm. and we look north of the border, yes. where Canada's for so long led the oh, way. not don't, 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 right? don't And look we're hard. wondering about your PM. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> we're cowards. I, I will admit that. Okay, Bruce, go ahead.
3: <laughs> Welcome back to CHRW 94.9, where we're in studio with Chris Goodwin and Aaron Gorman of Vapor Central in downtown Toronto and they're involved in the cannabis issue, and they are, I guess you could call them both lawbreakers, eh? <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> what do you think of what you just heard? Any comments? Uh, a few. Uh, uh, Ethan Nadelman to?
4: is a good advocate uh, for drug policy reform uh, out of the United States. Uh, Alan Young clearly is a, a lawyer, and he uh, is not nearly as optimistic as some of the activists like Ethan is, so he tends to take a pragmatic approach, thinking this is going to take a long time. There's There's a lot more hurdles to overcome than Ethan really realizes, and I'm sure that's r- true. The the first part of the bumper, the Bruce Alexander uh, quotes or whatever he was talking about in regards to globalization of addiction is such a fraud. Uh he he, explain, he tries to make the point that there's something new today, I guess. Since I, I had
3: that feeling in too. the last
4: 30, 40, 50, whatever he was referring to, or even the last five years, he's referring to something new today with the drug war, the drug usage, and and what he was referring to was the abusage rates, uh, people that are abusing um, any sort of drug, either be it alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, it doesn't matter. But uh, I don't think he's looked at the history. Uh, in 1911, 1811, uh, 1711, it didn't really matter people abuse the drugs that are around them at rates that are very similar to today it works out that you know 0.5% of the population will probably OD on things in, in in their times in their lives where they'll have such traumatic abuse of of a specific drug that they'll either die from its usage or have, have a uh, a, a very harmful uh, situation happen in them. 5% of the population might abuse certain drugs to the point it, where, it, where, it, where it's detrimental, but e- either slight or severe.
3: You now it's interesting you say that, because I, I, in watching that entire debate, mm-hmm. most of the panelists would agree with everything you said, even, I think, the person you're criticizing, because I think the highest rate of any addiction to any of the even harder drugs was in the 5 to 8% range, That's right. at worst. It, it, and so what they wanted to all dispense with was the idea of that there has to be a distinction between drug use and, and drug abuse be- and to, to leave the law out of it entirely. I think that was what his point was. And that, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, cannabis. What, why do you think cannabis, in your experience, has been, become such a... Um, a taboo issue and and so restricted by government when of all the things we could have picked in society of all the substances, of all the behaviors, of all the activities human beings get involved with, to a lot of people, this seems one of the most benign at the bottom end of any kind of scale.
4: Um, Mark has a lot of quotes on it that would go along the lines of answering that question with that it opens up people's minds in a way that no other drug does or although some drugs might mimic it, cannabis is just the most prevalent one. Uh, I guess mushrooms would be a a similar one, psychedelic mushrooms. I've never
3: heard a law law enforcement officer or a judge or an advocate say we're putting you away because this Product opens your mind.
4: No, or, but I, I know what I mean. I, I think that's in the back of everybody's mind, though. Cannabis is one of those things that that uh, again, going with what Mark says, it just we're we're taught to believe in one book philosophies and the way we sit in school and and, and, and in rows and, and go to class and and that cannabis is one of those things that when you smoke it, especially for the first time, it, it, it tends to and, and I've heard this from many people, including on the ride here at the on the Adam Carolla show. His guest said it opens up doors that can't be. shut. Shut, and, and that's that's one of the, the underlying factors to I believe w- why it's being prohibited that 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 it stops the social control that that the current society has on everybody that when people use cannabis or hashish they, t- they tend to start questioning authority they start questioning dogma they start questioning one book philosophies and uh,
3: but I don't know that is that really true in history. Before it was illegal, today it might be because it's illegal. You go to that illegal substance just to to challenge it. And that's part
4: of civil disobedience, I guess. Well, uh, one of the in, in, in I, I guess the, one of the things I'm thinking specifically in my mm-hmm. answer every time is this: is that uh, from the emperor wears no clothes and a lot of other books that teach this history examples that. Uh, Henry Anslinger in the 30s, as well as uh, many people a few hundred years before him, would advocate policies of social control, one of them being that you want to control a group of people, control the things they put in their bodies. Um, it seems to me an obvious way to control an entire group of people and uh, and that's what they did in the United States specifically um, they had a, a culture of Mexicans and blacks coming in from the south and to control those people they controlled what drugs they put in their body And it's primar- like the Jim Crow laws and that was primarily marijuana mm-hmm. and, and the Canadian example would be opium we had uh, on our western ports uh, in, in BC it was the Asians coming mm-hmm. in and using opium mm-hmm. uh, and our first laws were the 1908 opium Act and and we had a very similar person in Canada named uh, Emily Murphy that went under the the name Janie Canuck uh, under her pen name in Maclean's magazine. She used to write these racist articles uh, under the uh, the title The Black Candle and it, it would basically describe in almost the the cannabis way against Mexicans and blacks, but it, it was against Asians in an opium, describing them as heathens and and how they would be. Uh, Immune to pain after smoking this substance and and various things like that and 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 obviously it, it was racistly motivated. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the, it, it's again, it, even if the motivation is racist or something else, it's the control mechanism is clearly the tactic at why they're using prohibition.
3: Now, with respect to Vapor Central, are you alone in your business? Do you have competition?
4: Oh, we have lots of competition. Uh, I would hope that there was more. Uh, um,
3: but I mean in the sense of uh, maybe they're offering the same cannabis service you are, you know, as offering a place. Are they also uh, lawbreakers or or civil disobedience um, points
4: of centers, if you know what I mean? No. Mo- I, well, I, I can't say no completely. I would say no that... The activists that are engaging in outright direct action, civil disobedience, that are out there on the front lines breaking the law are a handful or a mm-hmm. few handfuls, a few dozen people across the country. We're talking out of 30 million people, the majority of activism is being done by a small group of people. And it usually ends up being that way in, in a lot of different cases. It ends up being that, that through the works of people like Mark Emery and then me and, or various other people, that, that people tend to mimic what we do without... The, the risk involved. Mm.
3: Um, uh, no, Aaron, you said at, at the beginning of the show that that you know you when you discovered Vapor Central, you kind of found a home. Yeah. Was that one of among many? Was that the one you picked out? Because if there was other competitive, um, similar.
1: I, I don't think anything else can really compare to Vapor Central. It is that element of activism that we have a purpose, that we, mm-hmm. we have there's something, we have meaning behind what we're doing. And like Chris said, I think a lot of other people look on what we do and see certain elements that they really like and try to emulate them, but uh, no one has the guts that Chris does to just keep with the truth.
4: Well, one other thing I was going to mention uh, in regards to your question, Robert Vaughn, earlier was uh, in regards to London, Ontario, in the 420, was that when... We did our 420 smokeouts in Hamilton and they threatened us never do this again. We did it again. London, Ontario had a very similar thing as Up and Smoke Cafe. A place called the Hippie Cafe opened here. I'm not sure if Londoners are familiar with that location. Um, I I forget what street it used to be on, but it was in a more of a suburban area, although it was on a main thoroughfare, I believe. And uh, the cops came in early on in their first six months and basically threatened them that uh, either you move this location, shut down completely kind of thing, or, or we will shut you down. Uh, they decided to move to a more downtown, urban-friendly area, and uh, as soon as you start giving into that kind of tendency of, of of force by a police officer who has no right to offer that kind of demand, like how dare you walk into a a store and say we don't like that this type of store is operating on this corner, move to another corner, and and when they they give into those demands, it starts the. The, the, the slope of agreeing with uh, your oppressors and, and they'll, they'll start asking for anything at that well, point I can
5: see where a police officer can go into a store and if there's a, a law being violated they can say that uh, you're violating the law, here's a summons or you're under arrest but to go into a, a place, uh, an establishment and say we don't like what you're doing, I'm not giving you a warning necessarily, I'm threatening you um, doesn't that sort of like overstep the bounds of what a police officer should be Yes,
4: but that is what they will do, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, These guys at the Hippie Cafe, I believe we're part of the Church of the Universe, so they have a lot of different values and different motivations, but one of the things that they are in in some ways like me is they don't mind being arrested. Um, So they'll they'll go through a cannabis arrest or two, but cops tend to also threaten a lot more than just cannabis arrest. They'll take your livelihood. They'll destroy your life. They will take everything from you and more. Um, I've had it happen to me where... uh, I was at a rally early on in back in uh, 2005, and I was telling a police officer at this rally that you know my aunt is a a teacher at at, at a local high school, and uh, my ex-wife at the time was a registered nurse, and and on and on, and I was telling how people that use cannabis are, are are responsible people who have jobs and lives and and families and everything else, and and from that conversation, he actually filed a Children's Aid Society report, and uh, three days later, I had a police officer and a Children's Aid worker. At my door and and they they were going to take my son and just from admitting to using cannabis so um, so you hadn't actually been charged with anything period before court
5: before any of these actions were taking place?
4: No, and this is all available online. I've, I actually still receive at least a request a, a week from people that Google, like Chris Goodwin Cannabis and Children's Aid, if you do a simple Google search, and you'll, you'll find lots of stories. I ended up doing one-hour things on CHML with Roy Green and CHTV, and and uh, so people have heard of this story or seen it online, and, and they always end up asking me, almost like Vapor Central in some ways, how did you do it? Because when Children's Aid came knocking, I still... Didn't give in. My th- this was one time where you can almost understand it in this way. Where when my mother, although my parents are actually uh, very cooperative and 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 have helped me along the way in regards to my activism, they're still parents and they still don't want to see their son getting arrested. So, but at the same time, although my mom supports what I do, she in this context she would still be like Chris you know, this is the time where you should just swallow your pride and say you don't smoke cannabis around your son or say that you aren't high around him or say that just lie if you have to lie for the sake of your son because they'll take him. And in in all good conscience, that that argument, it it, it resonates with me and it touches some strings and, and it pulls on some things, but I just couldn't in good conscience do something like that that, that um, so I, I had to, I believe, stand on my on my principles and, and and openly tell them what it is I do, even if it meant that okay. they would uh, go that really far route and well, destroy my life.
3: Let's hope that what happens to you on your stand on principles isn't the same thing that happened to Mark Emery, who is, mm-hmm. of course, right now, uh, sitting in a jail in the state of Mississippi, as I understand it. Um, coming up next, we're at the bottom of the hour already, I can't believe it. Um, This is a CHRW original recording, originally taped by Alex Jurowski, who attended the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery's farewell tour here in London at the Aeolian Hall back in 2009. Amazing what you were just talking about, Chris, because um, Mark talks about the same things in this particular excerpt, and what we'll be hearing is basically what are the legal consequences of getting busted just for marijuana? And Mark... um, From 2009 um, expands on that when we come back after the break we'll be expanding our own conversation more into the area of civil resistance and general uh, law breaking through history we'll be back after this
2: that's in Canada alone we have 2 million Canadians convicted of a cannabis offense in 45 years you know that's three generations 45 years 2 million Canadians and the funny thing is it's 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 bizarre because I often ask people, well, you know what, that costs billions of dollars. It costs fifty thousand to seventy thousand dollars just to house an inmate in any Canadian prison for one year. You could actually send a prisoner to the best university in this country for less money than it takes to imprison them in the worst jail. And yet we've got two million Canadians who have been convicted, over five hundred thousand Canadians spent some time in jail for a marijuana offense, cultivating, growing, selling, money laundering. You can get your house if you grow marijuana plants forfeited. They can take away your house. They can take away your children if you grow marijuana. You can lose your job for sure. And once you've got a marijuana conviction, even as small as a few grams, you're not traveling to the United States. You can't get bonded. You can't be a trucker. You can't be a banker. You can't be a teacher. You can't be a security guard. You can't be a lot of things if you've just got that little tiny marijuana conviction. You can't go to a U.S. university. You won't be able to do, uh, join any multinational company as an employee that does business with the United States. Your life is entirely compromised by ingesting the greatest substance on earth. <laughs> the greatest substance on earth. And, and here's, what, here's the twisted thing. If you're a rapist, you don't lose your house. If you murder someone you don't lose your kids if you're actually a menace to the community You don't lose your house. You don't lose your kids. You, you may not even I mean. I mean it's incredible It's just cannabis, but then I thought well if it's you know There must be some secret to this because I've been doing this for 20 years and I, and as I said I've been jailed 17 times I'm sought out as the number one drug lord in all of Canada I'm at the biggest threat to the United States of anybody in Canada And it's all about marijuana.
0: Salt! Yes, sir. He's going to march to the sea and make salt. There's a royal monopoly on the manufacture of salt, sir. It is illegal to make it or sell it without a government license. All right, he's breaking the law. What's that going to deprive us of? Two rupees of salt tax. It's not a serious attack on the revenue, sir. Its primary importance is symbolic. In this climate, sir, nothing lives without water or salt. Our absolute control of it is a control on the pulse of India. And that's the basis of this Declaration of Independence? Yes, sir. The day he sets off... Everyone is supposed to raise the flag of free India. And then he walks some 240 miles to the sea and makes salt. I say ignore it. Let them raise their damn flags. Let him make his salt. It's only symbolic if we choose to make it so. General Edgar is right. Ignore it. Mr. Gandhi will find it takes a great deal more than a pinch of salt. Bring down the British Empire. Long live! Long live! Long live! Long live! Is it all over if they arrest you now? Not if they arrest me or a thousand or ten thousand. It's not only generals who know how to plan campaigns. What if they don't arrest you? What if they don't react at all? Something for your notebook the function of a civil resistor is to provoke response and we will continue to provoke until they respond or they change the law Mm -hmm. they are not in control we are that is the strength of civil resistance
5: and welcome back to just right on CHW 94.9 fm where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on the conversation And uh, Bob and I are joined in the studio today with two guests, uh, Chris Gowen and Erin Ashley Gorman uh, from Vapor Central in Toronto, uh, marijuana activists. And that was a little clip from the movie Gandhi's during Ben Kingsley. And I I thought it was appropriate because here we have a a civil disobedience guru, so to speak, who um, basically changed the world. and and change his country by uh, non-passive resistance, much in the same sense that you guys are doing, though I I hesitate to call you Gandhi-esque, but maybe more Mark Emery-esque. Yes. So um, do you think that, as in that clip, they were talking about salt as being a way to control a population that's one of my historical examples right now marijuana is a way to control i think in this this society in western society the population as well because it gives the police an excuse to do a lot of things that they would not normally do if the crime was um, actually had a victim Mm -hmm. rather than a victimless crime much as in say like making salt is victimless yeah Right? So do you see the parallel there? Would you, would you think that's a, a, an appropriate parallel?
4: I do, and I've actually studied Gandhi's philosophies a lot about uh, the Sakrit and uh, the, the rules for the civil disobeyer, or however you say that word, and uh, he was obviously, Gandhi was following uh, the, the philosophies of Henry Thoreau and various other people that, that he, uh, obviously his f- most famous works uh, on civil disobedience, and uh yeah they've both basically henry thoreau and gandhi um came to a conclusion that uh, if there's an unjust law it must be openly broken uh and uh, i happen to agree and uh, martin luther king for instance also took that same philosophy and he, he called it what he believed it creating a healthy tension Um, That he wasn't afraid of the word tension and that his activities was to arouse the the conscience of the community into uh, um, either agreeing or disagreeing with them. That was part of his disobedience, uh, was to openly disobey it in such a way that forced them to actually confront the issue. And then at least everybody had to take a side, yes or no. And it it, it, it gave a a perfect position for activists to to finally lead to what, what they all wanted, which was negotiation
3: not all civil protesters get what they want in the end. Some of them lose their causes, and yet they still seem to have a certain satisfaction about what they do. Or they, pl- you know, they they just carry on doggedly, even if... Or maybe they might win, but it doesn't happen in their lifetime or at the time that they're being active. What is it that act? You know, I listen to the motivations of people, and it's like in the opening clip we heard from Deep Space Nine, where the fellow says, well, I'll lose my license, but I'll get great ratings. Yeah. <laughs> okay? And it's very much like that i mean mark emery might might be able to say that you know he lost his license so to speak his freedom and his ability to do uh, what he could do but he's getting great ratings to a certain degree although maybe not as great as even he'd like but is is that an important
4: element of it yes and uh because you guys have talked about altruism before in mm-hmm. regards to what it is your what it is you choose to value uh and uh, I, I obviously don't believe that that's the way in which uh, like s- some people point to people doing a good deed and think didn't they do it for the sake of others you just i always say you haven't seen the whole picture if you knew that person you would see that they may have had a, a higher agenda like getting laid, for instance. I I wouldn't want to put that out there. But a lot of people might not be aware of of those type of motivations or what people choose to value. And although on the surface it may seem like somebody is either losing something or they have given up a value for some greater good or collective or group, when in fact they were the ones that received value. There was a trade of of value for value and benefit for benefit, and and it just might not have been apparent.
5: So so. what do you value out of this? What is your your motivation and you as well, Aaron? What's driving you to do something like this well what are you getting out of it what's, how, what's your selfish motivation
4: well I, I believe happiness right I, I want to live a, a good happy life one that, that, that is in my own rational self-interest for long-term goals for me to have a, mm. a good life good family and, and live a good life and that's it and it just so happens that um, my tactics also lend to, to civil disobedience in a way that that also makes me happy. For other people, it can be severe. Just being arrested and having cuffs on and being put in a car can be so shameful to somebody or it could hurt your wrists, or it could, and then spending the night in lockup and these type of things could be so detrimental to one's life that nobody could argue any value or merit, no matter even if uh the destruction on their life from smoking pot for instance got better because they did it. So they spent a night in jail. Now the cops don't bug people as much, but that person still gave up activism after that. It was too hard. And and I've been through this el- enough where even people that love what we do and come in and say this is the greatest thing in the world and I'd love to be an activist and I'd love to do all this stuff too, 2 to 4 years go by and I end up inevitably hearing one of three things, which is I'm done, I've had enough and I can't take it anymore. And and that's usually the case and it's unfortunate not everybody goes through it obviously if you have similar values as mine and you like doing this and you don't mind the the hustle and bustle of being arrested and as well as i also claim neutrality in many ways i don't when I'm in court I don't look at it the way a lot of people think oh my god the crown is threatening me with a year and they only want to negotiate down to six months I can't do six months or a year I can't. none of that stuff phases me I don't think of it that way that's a year away that's, that's for another courtroom another negotiation but regardless I'm still doing what I do now and and what about you, Erin? What's
5: what's driving you to do this? Why don't you just give this up and have a happy life without being a marijuana activist?
1: Well, I guess I feel similar to Chris in that the fulfillment I receive from my efforts is is just um, priceless. I couldn't get it anywhere else. And, and like Chris said, most people couldn't handle it. It's not for everyone, and I believe I was made to be doing this. Um, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing.
5: So you feel a, self- a sense of fulfillment when you see... Uh, for example the police back down or uh, other people in society coming to your aid and and, and joining in the rallies and all that there's a, a sense of pride and fulfillment
1: definitely and we you were discussing earlier about how activists whether or not they um actually get their their results they're still happy with their efforts i think that we feel that way too it's a win-win we're, we're going to go on no matter what and um, whether or not we're put in jail or we, c- we're, we get away with it, each encounter we have and each time we move forward is move forward in the right direction.
3: Interesting. Believe it or not, It's quarter two already. want to take a quick break. And what you just brought up is, again, I, I, it's almost like you knew in advance where we were going with the direction of the show. Here's Mark Emery making another interesting point from the same excerpt that we took earlier from CHRW in 2009. Uh, In which he talks about a debt that society owes to people like himself and perhaps to people like yourself and on the other side We'll continue the conversation and wrap it up for the day. We'll be back after this
2: Now here's the thing My dad once told me mark the people who owe you the most who you've been the nicest to will often be resentful and hurtful to the degree that they spurn you they actually Reject you because of how nice you've been to them I said but that doesn't make sense dad and he says well I know it won't make sense to you son, but I he saw in me a really good instinct I wanted to help people at a very young age. He said, you know Sometimes you can do too much for people Sometimes you'd just be too nice and they'll resent it and they'll behave in a manner that you just don't Comprehend because they're bitter and they can't balance the scales of your goodness versus their ability Willingness to take what you offer and I think that's the way it is with the world because you know what? The straight people in this world, the marijuana prohibitionists, the people who want to ban it, owe marijuana people the most amazing debt of thanks that they could possibly it's just unbelievable how much straight people owe the marijuana people in this world. It's a debt that can never be paid, and we're not asking for anything at all in the first place. All we'd like is a little respect. The Prince of Pot, and you're listening to 94.9 CHRW.
3: Whereas Ted, who didn't start smoking pot till he was 31, by the time he retires, he'll still be paranoid craving pizza with Cocoa Pots.
2: But I I don't smoke pot anymore. And I never smoke cigarettes. I'm not a big smoker. Not and I'm not a big anti-smoker or anything like that. I'm not a big advocate or, you know,
3: whatever. I just I do think that smokers are the most unprepared people I've ever met. Ever been like outside when a smoker's trying to get a cigarette going, they're like, um, you got a light? (laughs) Anybody got a light? Anybody You, you know, it's not a monthly habit, it's an hourly habit. Maybe that's what they should have on the labels, warning, you might need some sort of flame to ignite these things.
4: <laughs>
3: yes, Adam grow about pot and cigarettes. You know, speaking of smoking cigarettes outside, you know, from, from New York City to Collingwood, Ontario, I've been noticing how municipalities are banning even the smoking of tobacco in public places. When I see trends like that, and then I think about the pot issue, they almost seem to be moving in opposite directions. Are they going to meet somewhere? Is there an inconsistency here? Um, are we going to end up with tobacco prohibition one of these days? We already have a bit of it when you look at the issue with the, what's happening on the reserves and things. Has, has, does that ever come up?
4: I think about the tobacco uh, comparison a lot because obviously they're both burnt sp- plant matter and they're both rolled in a similar way so there's so many
5: well, things but the same, yeah. <laughs> except that cigarettes of course are much more harmful
4: that's right uh, tobacco is, is uh, very much harmful where uh, all, all, almost it goes against your better judgment but marijuana is, is benign in comparison uh, but yes i think the tobacco smokers were uh, uh too easily pushed over um they they accepted too much too little too early too easy whatever and i guess it was originally you know the, the bars and restaurants were all right only make smoking section make this non-smoking you guys smoke over the bar and then, all right just smoke out front and now it's you can't smoke within nine meters and then soon it's going to be you can't smoke any yeah. and like you said we're getting to tobacco prohibition for sure and- well
5: today's paper even today in the national post i was reading an article where in australia They now have all cigarettes in uh, plain packaging. That's it. And they say Canada's next.
4: (laughs) And I don't know why the Shriners, why these uh, other or whatever clubs of old men that used to smoke cigars, why they're not banding together and opening
3: smoke-ing establishments. There's no Mark Emery's among them in terms of that (laughs) issue, that's for sure. Um, You know, it's just a bizarre issue. But, you know, the, the price of being a political activist who employs civil disobedience... Is really that's exposing yourself to injustice almost on purpose, isn't it?
4: In a yes.
3: Way. Um, how did you re- does that not bother you in and of itself, or is that that's the point, really, isn't it? For most people, I guess you have it's to be not, confident in your position to well, do something it, like that.
4: In my my history, from fourteen to eighteen, and and me deciding to stop doing hemp activism and start doing civil disobedience, I was arrested. And my mother uh, and she regrets it to this day in some ways because it turned out to be who I am, uh, found marijuana in my top dresser drawer kind of thing. And and when I got home from school, there was police cars out front of my house. And uh, I was living with my girlfriend at the time who eventually became my wife. But cops threatened to charge us both, ch- charge her with trafficking. We be- both spent the night in jail. She was crying all night long. We get out. I had to plea bargain down just to get her not to go to jail. And And then, so that was my first encounter with police and getting, and I was convicted. Um, So I I was 18 years old and I'm getting into political science and I I realized that if if I wanted to become a teacher, I wouldn't get a teaching certificate any longer. If I wanted to become a lawyer, I can't pass the bar. Like Mark was describing in that clip Mm -hmm. 15 minutes ago, there were so many barriers now to my life internationally as well as nationally and and community-wise that that I, I... There is almost no point now in me living a regular life of of just going around being what is normally referred to as a scoff law, just uh, avoiding necessarily getting what's caught. what's
3: weird is this this thing sticks with you the rest of your life, whereas any other crime you might be convicted of would be
4: expunged in some way, and you can't even refer to it. That's right. And and this one just so happens, yeah, I go to the border, and it pops up every time. There's just, I can't fly, I can't travel, I can't get employment, I can't, you know. So it, it was such a barrier that, that it forced this action on my part.
3: So... We don't have that much time left now. I'm just thinking of the future. Where do we go from here? You guys have some events planned, do you?
1: Uh, we've always got events mm-hmm. going on. You can check out our website, and we're also on Twitter and Facebook. And this, what's the
3: website? Uh, we give-
1: VaporCentral.com. .com. Mm-hmm. Or at VaporCentral for Twitter. We have a group on facebook this weekend there's a big event going on in toronto it's the second year of the treating yourself hemp expo at the metro toronto convention center that goes on june 3rd through 5th this weekend it's a huge event where international vendors have come and it's a amazing group of cannabis activists gathering together and a lot fun time in this city
3: you know it just sounds so funny to hear that there's an event like that going on at At a big convention center like that, while Mark Emery's sitting in a jail in a U.S. cell for, for what? Not even doing half of what you guys are doing. I know, just for the
4: seeds. Yeah,
3: just for selling a seed to an American.
4: That's right. And he
3: didn't even leave the country to do that. Are you afraid the Americans might come up and extend their jurisdiction into Canada?
4: Oh, that's what happened, right? Well,
3: with him, because they say he 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 you know he had the tentacles that went in the United states remember that speech? sure that's
4: extradition but, wise but sure the dea the, they have an office in vancouver and ottawa and i i believe there's another one i i'm not sure if it's in toronto or montreal and yeah they're they're exte- extending their tentacles into this country more than just picking out guys like mark emery or other international type well, people I mean, the, since you're on since you're on the internet mm-hmm.
5: you're actually crossing a border in that way so i mean technically or theoretically um I, I I could easily see the, the DEA come up in here and say, you know, you're under arrest, and we're going to extradite you, and you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail in the United States simply because you're on the internet advocating breaking the law.
4: Sure, and we've we've heard the most common theme now is when you're driving up to the border, your RFID chip in your passport now gets picked up within like 30 meters, so they already know who you are, and they'll Google Google you like right at the border, right? So if they Google Erin Gorman, for instance, and she's traveling with her family to Philadelphia like she was two weeks ago, you know, you get scared that all of a sudden Erin Gorman weed activist with a pot flag and smoking a joint will come up. And, and then, yeah, they'll flag you right at the border tell you to pull over and search the car. And
1: you know, My cousin last year was coming from the States. He's American. And he had a cannabis charge when he was a teenager. So that's like eight years ago. And the whole family van was searched, ripped apart, everything from... a from an old charge and
4: from the 70 I've heard of people from like 79 they had a pot charge and comes up 30 years later well so. but the injustice that goes on just from what you're
5: talking about I can easily see how you can become a marijuana activist yep if there's a if there's an issue in Canada today we all think that we're nice and cozy in our living rooms watching TV but there's people out there whose lives are being absolutely ruined not by smoking pot but by the police and the courts and the country and the attitudes.
4: And Henry Thoreau used to, when he talked about in on civil disobedience, he talked about that if you were living in a backwoods somewhere or some on some road and you didn't hear about or you just never heard about over, you know, decades, that an injustice was going on, you know, a thousand miles away, there could be nothing that you could ever do about it. And even if you had heard primarily, there's not much you could do about it. So he described that most people don't do anything that, that doesn't have a direct connection to their lives, right? Guys like, you know, the Mark Emery and with, working with the Freedom Party, he, he, he was directly affected Sh- sunday shopping affected him so he opened illegally every sunday and things like uh, and then i think when the law changed they said you could only have three employees so he hired four employees mm. he just immediately would find any way to break the law he could and do it openly and flagrantly of course because it, it negatively affected him in a way that was direct and and, and pronounced on his life that and, and, and in a way that he just could not go without then he breaking. was successful as well changing those laws yes
3: many of them. You know, I've always heard it said there's three forms of law breaking and one is uh, criminal law breaking, the other one is political protest and the other one is a moral obligation when you are morally obligated to break the law, as some people found themselves obligated to do in some of the worst conditions in the world, such as what happened in Germany during the last Holocaust. You know, we don't have much time left, but I'm sure there has to be people out there who are a little bit uptight about this issue, people who might be concerned about their kids, who might be concerned about, uh, maybe even for political reasons, I don't know. What would you say to all these uptight conservatives, you know, or people who are maybe afraid of this issue? What would be the best thing to tell them?
4: Uh, that that free issues uh, uh, and, and liberty, issues of liberty and, and that are in their own self-interest as well, even if they don't realize it, that although they may have a a personal moral uh, objection to what I do, it is only personal. And any time you allow a government body to instigate force against somebody like me, you also open the the, the floodgates for them to initiate force against you and for things that you couldn't even imagine today. I was going to mention a quote by Ayn Rand mm. referring to civil disobedience and saying that, you know, it's usually not justified and it's never justified against a private group, which is true. And even against uh, governments, you should never really block off a road, for instance. But I don't think she could have seen the magnitude, you know, in 1950, for instance, when they were only arresting uh, 50 people a year for cannabis. And even if you go into the 70s, it's only a few hundred people a year for cannabis-related offenses. Up until her death in, in the early 80s, it was only... 1,200 people a year. Now it's upwards of 100,000 people a year. The war on drugs is such a giant colossal infringement on our rights that um, us blocking off a roadway or, uh, or, or, or doing these acts of civil disobedience are actually small in comparison to what we actually have the right to do so
5: isn't there a fear because of all of these arrests and all of the incarcerations that there's a vested interest for the police and the courts and the governments who now have thousands upon thousands of bureaucrats just trying to house and arrest and keep track of all these evil pot smokers out there that it's almost getting much more harder to overturn these these stupid
4: laws And that was Mark Emery's plan, overgrow the government, right? He he wanted to uh, expose the government to so many seeds and so many activists and smokeouts that they would just be overwhelmed, and it's worked fabulously, I think.
3: Well, it seems to be having an effect. It seems a little little too slow for some people and a little too (laughs) fast for others, and I think that's the whole problem. Guys, the hour has gone by already. It's been great. Um, We've had Chris Goodwin and Aaron and Aaron Gorman with us from Vapor Central in Toronto. Check them out, VaporCentral.com online. Well, that's it for today. We've got to go. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Free colour, colour into black and white. Under
4: the everything will be now, some of you know this, the best way to smuggle drugs into a country, if that's what you choose to do, and I'm not recommending it, best thing to do is to place them carefully in a dog's bottom, like so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <clears throat> because at the airport, if the sniffer dogs suspect anything... The, um, you know, <clears throat> <what? clears
4: throat> you know the, the officials will think they're just being frisky, so it's foolproof. <laughs> Unless, of course, your dog wears sunglasses and sweats a lot. That would give it all away.